Welcome back to this Gastroenterology Learning Network podcast. My name is Brian Lacey. I'm a professor of medicine at the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida. I'm delighted to be once again speaking with Dr. Baha Moshiri, who's a professor of medicine and director of the Matilde Laboratory in the Division of Gastroenterology and Hepatology at Atrium Health in Charlotte, North Carolina. Our discussion today will be on the treatment of IBS. It's really hard to have any discussion these days about IBS without mentioning the low FODMAP diet, fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyols. Why might this diet improve IBS symptoms and what's the data to support its use? So there's plenty of studies, um, you know, starting from Monash University that came up with this low FODMAP diet plan, and then others that subsequently done in the UK, and then also, of course, in the United States, comparing the low FODMAP diet to the traditional, even nice diet. And so FODMAPs are fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyols. And what these foods do, they are, they increase water secretion and colonic fermentation. They interact with the gut bacteria. And as a result of this fermentation, there are gases that are produced that can cause distension of the intestinal wall and then the symptoms of irritable bowel syndrome, the abdominal pain and bloating. And they also have effects such as diarrhea. You know, we don't really understand the effects on the gut microbiome completely, but there is an increased intestinal permeability that's also seen in these patients. And based on the several randomized controlled trials now that have been done, the abdominal pain in IBS and then the global symptoms, which is the important FDA endpoint, did improve after two to six weeks of this low FODMAP diet. And so it's a lot of legumes, things like onions, there's grains, there's lots of fruits, artificial sweeteners that are special gas producing and are fermentable in the colon that can cause these symptoms. So really it's a elimination type of diet. You want, one could say that it's really also a way to diagnose irritable bowel syndrome because we can identify certain foods that are problematic in our patient population that patient can then avoid. And that'll be a much easier mechanism than going on pharmaceutical drugs. There was low quality of evidence because sustainability of the low FODMAP diet is hard. And then the studies some of them were very heterogeneous, but I think for the most part, this is a standard diet that we recommend to our patients with irritable bowel syndrome. Wonderful. You know, one of the interesting things about the guideline, I thought, was that it not just highlights important things to do, but also highlights practices that we should not be doing. And this guideline comes out against the routine use of smooth muscle antispasmodics. Why is that? So this was specifically the ones, you know, we looked at the ones that were available, of course, in the United States. And the three that we have available are dicyclamine, hyoscyamine, and then hyosin, which is scopolamine that's used for motion sickness. You know, I use that frequently, actually, in my dyspepsia population and patients with like nausea. But in irritable bowel syndrome, at least, you know, review of all these trials showed that these were very old studies, old, like in the 80s, (laughs) some of them. And I guess not that old. And then they were not as robustly done. Of course, the FDA endpoints were not often used and there was limited data. There was a significant amount of bias with many of these studies. So the quality was not as rigorous as the quality of the studies that are now done. And then because of the side effects of these drugs, which are constipation, dry mouth, and then their sedating effects, these are less desirable options. And um, most of the studies did not show any change in the bowel habits, except for the fact that they can be constipating. So they may not be as, you know, well supported for the patients with IBS-C specifically. 
and in diarrhea, it, there was no increased improvement in patient symptoms versus the placebo. Wonderful. Similarly, although probiotics are widely used by patients for a number of different conditions, the guidelines argue against the routine use of probiotics for IBS symptoms. What was the rationale there? I think this is where the guidelines probably gets some pushback probably from patients. You know, I have patients that come in every day today, um, two of them that take certain kinds of probiotics that they take out of a fridge and it has certain species of bacteria in them that are in the billions and they think that they have perhaps helped their symptoms. So unfortunately, based on the 37 trials that we reviewed as part of the guidelines, many of the studies that are done are done on single species or just a few. And we don't really know what species each patient needs because we don't really know everyone's gut microbiome. But even review of the studies shows that probiotics did not improve, did not significantly improve the global symptoms of irritable bowel syndrome. So at least for IBS, we were not able to make that as a recommendation. And we recommended against it based on the decrease in gut diversity, like microbiome diversity that is seen with probiotics. And then studies that have looked at lactobacillus and bifidobacterium also did not show improvement in the global symptoms. And the only, the one that was studied, the largest studies was Saccharomyces um, cerevisiae, and that showed improvement 32% versus 26% on placebo. So at this point in time, we just actually don't have enough information to make that a guideline recommendation. Yeah, nicely put that. Again, this shows sometimes, although there are multiple studies, because of the different doses, the different strengths, the different probiotics, and the different patients, right? Our gut microbiomes are all different. That we, I think we still have a lot to learn about this topic. Polyethylene glycol, widely used to treat constipation. It's safe. It's not expensive. It generally helps constipation. But once again, the guidelines said, don't routinely use this in IBSC patients. Why is that? Again, the word there is routine. I am sure that there are gastroenterologists out there that use PEG for IBSC, and I think that's perfectly, perfectly okay, um, even if it does disagree with the guidelines, because PEG is cheap right now. A lot of insurances are not covering even the pharmaceutical drugs that are available for IBS. After review of the data, though, there were four trials using PEG for CIC, and the four trials that were reviewed there was no improvement in abdominal pain. And in some of the trials, bloating actually worsened. Although bloating is not part of the ROM4 criteria for diagnosis of IBS, bloating is an important symptom that patients have. And since this was a side effect of PEG, it was not recommended. So really the global symptoms of IBS do not improve with PEG, which is why the guidelines did not recommend it. Is it a cheap option for constipation? Absolutely. CIC and IBSC, are they on a spectrum? Probably. But if abdominal pain is the main symptom we're also trying to improve, PEG did not improve that symptom. That's that's a great way to phrase that, Baha. So for our listeners who may not have read this, this is in the January 2021 edition of the American Journal of Gastroenterology. And a focus was on improving global IBS symptoms, pain, constipation or diarrhea, and bloating. Polyethylene glycol helps constipation, but may not improve those other symptoms, which is why it didn't get a great recommendation. Let's shift gears again now to the two GCC agonists. These are the guanolate cyclase C agonists that are on the market, linaclotide and placanotide. What's the data supporting their use? So the data, Brian, on these is actually very robust because they had to meet the FDA endpoints of sustained response, 
you know, and then also efficacy. And they had to prove that there was an improvement in the patient's worst abdominal pain scores by 30%, and then also a complete spontaneous bowel movement that was achieved, which, you know, constipation is defined as less than three bowel movements a week. So these had to be weekly for a, a big segment of the studies for linaclotide, the endpoint was actually achieved up to six months. So that's a very long-term study on that specific drug. And both of these drugs improved the visceral pain. So they improved abdominal pain, bloating, and also the constipation symptoms. So these did target the global symptoms in IBS. And of course, because these are newer drugs, the FDA endpoints that are now important were all met. Wonderful. For many of our listeners who uh, are a little bit older, which includes me, they'll remember the story about Tegacerod, which is a 5-HT4 agonist. And it had this interesting history where it was brought to the market, was shown to be very helpful for many patients, then voluntarily withdrawn, and then reapproved by the FDA in 2019. There's a lot of data supporting its use. In which patient would you consider using Tegacerod? Yes, yeah, so definitely the recommendations are for women because the studies showed that there are plenty of studies on Tegacerod, but the studies showed improvement specifically in women. Now it's only recommended in women less than 65 years of age who don't have any cardiovascular risk factors. Pretty much you have to have less than one cardiovascular risk factor or none, I would say, in my own practice. And the reason for this is because of the cardiovascular disease, there was an increased um, event risk in patients who used Tegacerod and there was affected 14 patients in the studies. And that's why it was removed in 2002 when I was actually a GI fellow and thought this was the best thing in the world because <laughs> we had no other prescription drugs available for IBSC and then removed in 2007. And then now it's re-entered the market in 2019. So really it's for women with IBSC less than 65 years of age and no cardiovascular um, risk factors. And so the data on men did not really show any significant improvement, and therefore they didn't have enough men in the studies, perhaps, and therefore this is not a recommendation we make for men with IBS-C. Baha, thank you. Let's talk a little bit about IBS with diarrhea. And we've got some really neat data over the last decade showing that anywhere from about 10 to 30% of patients with IBS and diarrhea may have some component of bile acid malabsorption as a cause of their symptoms. However, the guidelines recommended against the routine use of bile acid sequestrants for the treatment of IBS with diarrhea. What was the rationale here? The rationale here is mostly because the there's two tests that can be done for bile acid diarrhea, which is, you know, it's, it's prevalent in like 1%. Also, it's very similar to celiac disease, actually, um, in patients, especially with IBSD. But the issue is that testing is not available for this in the United States. This, there's a serum C4 test and then a nuclear medicine test called CCAT. And we don't have those available. And so this was a North American guideline. And then also there's been not a lot of studies showing that bile acid sequestrants are helpful necessarily in the IBSD populations. There were some studies, but there wasn't a large amount compared to placebo with long duration. And therefore, because of lack of data at this point in time, we did not recommend bile acid sequestrants be used um, in patients with IBSD. Right. So again, they may work in individual patients. We just don't have those large randomized controlled trials like we did, as you mentioned, for placanotide and linaclotide. Yep. Let's think about the target one, target two, and target three studies, three large studies looking at the value of rifaximin for the treatment of IBSD symptoms. How do you use rifaximin in your practice? 
based on these studies, of course, a third of the patients can just have resolution of their IBSD symptoms. So that's a fantastic outcome, right? So a third of the patient we may never have to see because they're actually cured in, in a way. Um, although again, this is a chronic condition. The drug has great safety. So in my population, really, there's our recommendation was a strong recommendation based on a moderate level of evidence. So the retreatment is based on target three studies where these are patients that benefited initially, but then had recurrence of symptoms. And then they were placed in this target three trial where they were retreated. And then again, there was improvement of their global symptoms of IBS. In my practice, this is probably with the initiation of the low FODMAP diet. Um, this is something I do very quickly thereafter because it's a safe drug. It's 95% bioavailable in the gut. There's not a lot of other side effects associated with this drug. It is expensive. So I think the only issue with the drug is that for people with insurances where this is not authorized, it can be an issue. But, you know, taken with a two-week course, again, a third of the patients not having to be seen by a physician or a practitioner and having resolution of their symptoms is great. So I use that in IBSD population often. Wonderful. Great for our listeners. Safe and very effective for many patients. Alocitron, a lot of uh, our listeners may have forgotten about that. It's a 5-HT3 antagonist. It slows the GI tract, helps urgency and diarrhea, and it can be very effective at treating IBSD symptoms in women who have failed standard therapy, but it's really not widely used. So how do you use this medication in your practice? This was around at the same time, same time as Tegasrod. So they pretty much came around the same time. And then the issues were with Allocetron were ischemic colitis. There was a very low risk of ischemic colitis after review of several meta-analysis that was done later on. And then the FDA regulated it. So there was like a REM certification that was necessary for prescribing the drug. And you had to put these blue stickers on the prescriptions when you ordered them and you entered a contract with the patient, patient had to sign a consent form saying that if they, you know, have constipation or development of abdominal pain, that they are to stop the drug and that they know the risk of ischemic colitis exists. That's actually now been taken away. But so in my practice, I, I continue to use it throughout the entire time, even with the consent form, because I've found it to be effective and it is recommended in our guideline, although the recommendation is a low level recommendation, but in patients with moderate or severe IBSD who are suffering with abdominal pain and diarrhea, it can be effective. The dose is, starts at 0.5 milligrams. So usually I'll start at the lowest dose, 0.5 milligrams once a day, and then I'll increase it to 0.5 twice a day if they have improvement in their symptoms. And it, you know, in other patients, they may have to be on one milligram instead of the 0.5 milligrams. And I tell them to watch out for constipation, of course, worsening. And if that occurs, you stop the drug and then development of ischemic colitis. So if they have other risk factors for developing ischemic colitis, this is not the drug for that patient. Good teaching point. I think it is underused and can be very effective. So for our listeners, don't forget that. Baha, many of our patients used herbal products, including peppermint oil. What's your view on herbal products and alternative therapies like peppermint? I'm a big fan. You know, I come from an Asian background where I'm pretty sure I had turmeric with every food item I've ever ingested. <laughs> curcumin, right? Ginger has been in every every concoction, cinnamon, etc. But, you know, peppermint oil, there's actually data. So there's a large meta-analysis that was done looking at 12 studies where peppermint was used. And peppermint itself has L-menthol, which blocks calcium channels. And that 
relaxes smooth muscle. So there's definitely a physiologic reason. And then recently, we've also found that it modulates the transient receptor um, voltage channels that help with this visceral hypersensitivity and sensation. So when we reviewed those 12 studies and the meta-analysis that was recently published, there was a lot of bias and the studies were heterogeneous, but enteric-coated peppermint actually can be helpful with the symptoms of IBS. So this was, you know, with the global symptoms of IBS. Now, that's the only herb so far that has been shown to help with symptoms of IBS. The other ones just haven't been rigorously studied. So I think some of it is probably that herbs to go through this rigorous randomized controlled trials are much harder to study because of funding. Yes, absolutely. So Baha, lastly, the guidelines recommend the use of neuromodulators to treat IBS symptoms, in particular, tricyclic antidepressants. Can you tell our listeners which agent or agents you prefer and why, and how do you use these agents? Tricyclic antidepressants are probably are the neuromodulators that have the most well-designed studies, specifically amitriptyline, disipramine are agents that have been studied. There's 12 randomized control trials with that as well. And their use is mainly in IBS with diarrhea, but of course they can also be used in mixed type IBS. Mixed type IBS is oftentimes left out of these studies because you know, the, the symptoms can be exacerbated by whether you give them constipation drugs or drugs that affect diarrhea. Since those patients alternate, these drugs work on norepinephrine and dopamine, but they also have anticholinergic mechanisms, which accounts for the dry mouth and the constipation effects. So I use the tricyclic antidepressants such as like nortriptyline or disipramine that have less of those acetylcholine side effects. So those those are my favorites. I usually start them at a low dose of 25 milligrams, and then I increase them up to 75 milligrams or higher. And then we do give it to them for a longer period of time, like six months, because they start having an effect at about four to six weeks. And you do want to increase them if the patient hasn't had a you know, bad side effect and if they're having improvement. So usually I tell patients, you know, you're not going to see an improvement in a week or two, like you may on a laxative, but the symptoms of pain should start improving, you know, after like a month or month or six weeks. So then it's important for them to see us and so that we can increase the dosage on their tricyclics. These were definitely recommended based on the guidelines and the number needed to treat was about four for um, tricyclic antidepressants and IBS. Right. So these can be really effective agents. So for our listeners, get comfortable with one or two, know the ins and outs, and really incorporate them into your practice. Baha, this has been an amazing discussion. Thank you. You've just provided a wealth of information to our listeners. So thank you so much. Any last uh, comments for our listeners? Yes, absolutely. So, of course, we didn't talk about this uh, psychological um, you know, interventions that can be done by our GI psychologist in patients with irritable bowel syndrome. A multidisciplinary approach can be incorporated to many practices. I do understand that in a private practice module type of hybrid practice that I am in, it is difficult to get dietitians and GI psychologists, but they are definitely out there. And I think for the IBS population, having them as part of your team is really important to helping these patients. Avoiding too many diagnostic testings is probably better for our healthcare system, but also better for each of our individual patients. Having confidence in the diagnosis of IBS is really important. And realizing that subtyping patients will help guide treatment is also very important. Listen to the patient. So I would say, you know, 
these are patients that require more time, I would say, than perhaps others that have like a definite organic cause to their disease. But finding out the patient's stressors, other comorbidities, really effectively communicating with them is really important in patients with irritable bowel syndrome. So hopefully these have been kind of helpful guides here. Baha, once again, uh, on behalf of the GI Learning Network and behalf of our listeners, thank you so much for this great educational podcast. We can't thank you enough. Thank you, Brian. This was great. Thank you.